Take your Bibles and go to Psalm 82. We're going to hit the ground running today. I really hope to finish our study today in this psalm, but if we don't, we will come back a third week um, because it's more important to me that we cover the material than it is that I just get through it. There's a lot here, and so if I'm not going to get through it, I'll just quit when it's time, and we'll come back and do it one more time. Let's go right to Psalm 82. Talking about the divine counsel in the unseen realm. Our goal is to give us a framework, spiritual framework, to really understand the increasing craziness and violence and oppression and just nutsness in the world in which we live. I, you know, I thank the Lord. You are a great group of people to preach to week by week because you're engaged and you want to know. I, I, I'm just blessed by that. Um, and so I get a lot of feedback on messages that I bring. But I had to say I got a lot of feedback from last week's. And I uh, had a lot of talk and a lot of communication with folks on this subject. I also saw a lot of, like, deer-in-the-headlights kind of looks at me last week. It was pretty quiet in here and a lot of process, not because you were sleeping, just because there was a lot of processing going on. And so, you know, we're going to do a little bit of review because I think it's important. But we're going to primarily cover new territory. But let's read the song. God is God alone. Amen? He is God alone. He doesn't need anything from us. He sits enthroned in the heavens. There is one God. And that one God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the earthly gods, he holds judgment. And he says to these earthly gods, these false gods, these idols of men, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to what is wicked? This is what God says to these gods. And then he uses the word selah. That's kind of a musical term, probably almost like a rest. And it really kind of the thought about just pause. Think about what we just read. Selah. Then God says to these gods, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 5. We see the result of the unju- in the injustice of these gods in the world, the oppression. Because of that, They cause the nations, those who do not know God, that they have no knowledge nor understanding. But men are just walking about in darkness. It's like bumping your head against the wall and you don't know where you're going and what's in front of you. You can't see it. You're in darkness. And so the nations have no knowledge. They have no understanding. And all of the foundations upon which the earth rests 
are shaking. And then God speaks. I said that you are God's. You are sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, just like men, you will die. You will be cast into the lake of fire. He is saying to these idols, you will fall like any other prince. And then Asaph closes the psalm with a plea to God, almost like is encapsulated in the one word that Paul uses in the Gospels, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. These verses, remember we looked at this last week, these verses describe the unseen spiritual realities that stand behind physical events on earth. It is descriptive. These verses that we have read are descriptive of God's sovereign control over all of the spiritual beings that he has created. But many of these spiritual beings that God created followed Satan in his rebellion. And they now sow seeds of confusion, oppression, and darkness on the earth. We're going to see this later in John chapter 10 when Jesus talks about how he is the door and how we go in by him and we find life, we find pasture, but the thief comes and he never comes in by the door. How does the thief come in? He crawls up some other way. He has some better way. But the thief comes to do what? To steal, to kill, to destroy. So these spirit beings sow seeds of confusion and oppression and darkness upon the earth. Here's an overview of the psalm. We just read it. Let's do it real quickly. Remember verse 1, he is talking about God's sovereign position. God has taken his seat. God is not threatened by these deities, these false deities. God is not worried whether he will win. He is sovereign. He is God alone. He rules. God is sovereign in his position. We're going to see this later when we see how Satan, even to do anything, to do anything, before he can do it, he has to ask permission of God. He cannot act independently. We see God rebuking the gods. How long will you judge unjustly? How long will you show partiality to the wicked? This is exactly what we see going on in the world. We see injustice on every hand. How long will this go on? How long will you do this, God says to these gods? And then God gives his prescriptive will to the gods. What I want you to do is give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. I want you to maintain the right of the afflicted, although they disobey his prescriptive will, just as we can disobey God's prescriptive will. God gives his will to us in his word, and you and I make a choice. We either obey or we disobey. God prescribes to these gods, to these entities, what his will is, but they still resist it. We then see the result of the gods' deceitful ploys. We read that. Men walk about in darkness and oppression. We see the announced doom of the gods. God says to them, you're gods, but you're going to die just like any other man. 
And like any other prince, you will fall. And he puts them in their place, and then we see it closes with a plea. Now let's go from this to what we talked about briefly last week. We talked about the identity of these gods. We talked about it being a divine council in verse 1. This does not mean that the members of this council that God mentions are equal to the one true God. They are not. They are false gods. They are idols. They are demons. Some of them are good angels. They're the angelic unseen host. But they are a council that has access to God. They are in his presence. They ask things of him, and God gives them instruction. Uh, They are mentioned as gods in verse 1 and verse 6, and then they are called sons of the Most High in verse 6 as well. Now, we're not going to go through these verses. We're going to, boom, like go right by them. 1 Corinthians 8, we talked about how these gods are not real. There's only one God. They're not real. However, we saw in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians that these gods, although they are not real, they are a front for demonic activity. And so he says, I do not, he says, no, But I do say that what they sacrifice, they are sacrificing to demons. So the nations are sacrificing to gods, idols. And they think that they are offering a sacrifice to this deity, whatever it may be. But that entity is not even real. But there is a demon behind it. That is what Paul has mentioned. It's important we note that. So when we talk about these gods, these false deities, idolatrous systems in the world, we are talking about demons. That is Paul's teaching. Now, we looked at Genesis chapter 6, and we could get really hung up on this again, but I use this to describe these sons of God. When mankind began to multiply in the earth, Daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were knockouts. Right? Wow. But this isn't just any normal like, you know, wow, she's a beauty. This is some kind of perverted thing where a demon spirit gets a hankering for a woman. Nephilim are on the earth in those days. The word Nephilim means fallen ones. You remember that? And uh, we just got to stop with that. That would be like a month study right there. We went to Job 1. We talked about the sons of God coming to present themselves before the Lord. Now, we find out immediately sons of God are not people like us because one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where did you come from? Okay, divine councils meeting. Where did you come from, Satan? I came from walking around on the earth. The Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? So the sons of God here are angelic beings, right? Angelic beings. Deuteronomy 32, this is going to factor in important to our message in just a minute. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, when did he do this? Tower of Babel, In Genesis chapter 10, when he divided mankind, 
He fixed the borders of the peoples, both geographically and their time. And he did so according to what? The number of the sons of God. And so we illustrated this by looking in Daniel chapter 10, where we see the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And this prince of the kingdom of Persia that withstood Michael the archangel for 21 days, these kings of Persia and this prince of Greece, they are not earthly beings, physical realm like us. No, these are spiritual beings that have been allocated by God authority over a kingdom of men. So in the ancient world, the kingdom of Persia had an earthly physical ruler. But parallel to that, in the spirit realm, there was a son of God, an angel, in the demonic host, that was confronting Michael and fighting against Michael repeatedly. Okay, that's where we got last week. Now let's move on. We're going to talk about these angels. We're going to talk about good angels and bad angels, and then we're going to bring this to a close with some application. 2 Peter chapter 2. In 2 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, no, Paul didn't write Peter, did he? No, I screwed up, see? 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is writing, he is talking about false teachers. These verses begin by talking about false teachers. False teachers are bold and they are willful. And these false prophets in the physical realm do not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not even dare pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, you say, what am I talking about there? Two things. One is, there's just a statement there that is saying this about the angelic host. Are you stronger than angels? No. They are what? Greater in might and power than men. That's what he's saying. That's something to note. These angels are beings who are extremely powerful and strong. Young people, do not think you can play with the fire of hell and dally with satanic beings and come out on top. You will not. They are greater in power than you. But what is also told here, and this is important, false teachers, one of the characteristics of false teachers is pride and headiness. And many times you will notice false teachers who have sold the gospel will also be very presumptuous in their speech 
about unseen spiritual realities. And Peter is saying, when you see that, you see somebody who is in danger. Because even the angels who are more powerful than us will not dare to bring a blasphemous accusation against another glorious being. We'll we'll get to that later. That's in my pastoral counsel at the close. There is a companion passage in Jude. In the book of Jude, it tells us that when Moses died, he died up on Mount Nebo, never gets to go into the promised land, right? And in the Pentateuch, we don't get this story, but God gives it to us in the book of Jude that Satan contends over the body of Moses, wanting Moses' body. Now, why? We have no idea. But he wanted Moses' body. And Michael would not rebuke him in his own name. What did he say? The Lord rebuke you. That was how Michael won the battle against Satan when Satan wanted the body of Moses, the Lord rebuke you. He doesn't get into a pitched battle with him. And that's going to figure importantly in some application at the end. He simply says what? The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. That's important. You come up against a demonic spirit at some point in time in your life. How do you deal with that? The Lord rebuke you. They are more glorious and powerful than you are. You try to fight them, you may run out of the house naked like the seven sons of Sceva. Right? Remember that in the book of Acts? Okay? They are more glorious and powerful than you are. It's the Lord rebuking. Now, let's go on. Here's some things we learn about the angels. These angels are spirit beings created by God and he created them prior to the universe. How do we know that? In the book of Job, it tells us that when God was making the heavens and the earth, the angelic choirs was accompanying what he was doing in singing. Now, can you imagine that? Let there be light, and there was light. And when that's happening, all of the innumerable hosts of the angels are singing and praising what God is doing. And then it's like, Oh, let the fish fill the seas. Who knows what they were singing, right? And then it's, let us make man in our image. And all the angels sing. So there's singing going on to accompany the creation that God does in the six days of creation. But these spirit beings were created by God prior. They were created as a host, not a race. We talked about that last week. They were created by God to worship God and to do his will. Okay? Why were you created? Remember the catechism? Why were we created? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Why were the angels created? To worship God and to do his will. That's why he made them. They were created with the capacity, just like us, to choose. To choose to follow his will or to rebel. 
And it tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that approximately one-third of the angelic host, of which it tells us in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, that it is an innumerable host, that one-third of them fell with Satan in his rebellion. In Isaiah 14, it mentions how Satan was lifted up in pride and sought to usurp the throne of God and to take God's throne. And there's a rebellion in the heavens, and a third of the angels go with it. Oh, it's also interesting to think about the angels in the book of Revelation. Now, I know a lot of you like the book of Revelation, because I get a lot of questions about the book of Revelation, right? Now, this is interesting. You cannot study the book of Revelation and not think about angels. Whether or not you do so or have ever done so in the past, you sometime ought to pick up your Bible with a concordance and look up angels in the book of Revelation. Seventy-eight times in the book, angels are mentioned. That's a lot. There are angels of the churches, aren't there? So when Jesus writes a letter in chapter 2 and 3 to the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and all these seven churches, who does he address it to? To the elder board? To the angel of the church. So just as there was a prince of Persia that was seeking to thwart God's will in the kingdom of Persia, so too God has allotted angels, the angelic host, to oversee his church. And we saw that in the book of Ephesians. So there are angels of the churches, uh, angels worship around the throne, they act from heaven at God's bidding. Now, there's no place in the Bible to really demonstrate the fact that when heaven does something, it affects the earth. So God says to an angel, blow a trumpet. What happens when that angel blows the trumpet? Something on earth comes to bear. So there is this unseen realm that is affecting events on earth. And it is through these spirit beings, these angels. Now let's do a real quick timeline. We're going to do this real quick, but it's important. Okay, so I want you to get this in your head. Okay, so we're going to start in eternity past. This is eternity past. And God has been existing forever. At some point, God creates spirit beings. And when God creates them, he creates them good to do his will. Now, I don't know if you can see that. If you can't, forgive me. At some point going forward, God creates the universe, the physical realm in which we live. Okay? This is the unfolding story of the Bible. After, and when God created the physical realm, he created it how? Good. Everything was good. After God creates, something happens with these beings, and a third of them rebel with Satan against God. And Satan then, having access to earth, 
Because it tells us in Genesis 6 that these beings were on the earth. Okay? So when we read that Satan was a serpent, it wasn't shocking to Adam to have a conversation with this serpent. So these beings, these spiritual beings, are also present on earth in this time frame. We know this from other places. When Adam sins and he's kicked out of the garden, God put an angel at the entry with a flaming sword. And we don't know when God took that angel away, but he was guarding the way to the tree of life. These beings are on earth. That's why when you read about the Nethanim, we're talking about a time frame on earth that was dramatically different than what it is today. So, Satan falls, man falls, and time goes on. After mankind's fall, things are getting increasingly violent and increasingly sexually perverse. By the time you get to Genesis 6, God destroys it all in a flood. And after the flood, we have Noah and three boys and their wives, and from them come all the nations of the earth. And when you get to Genesis chapter 10, it told us in Deuteronomy 32 that when God divided up the nations... He did so and allotted various spirit beings to those nations as rulers, like we read in the book of Ephesians. But God said, my people are my inheritance. So he chose Abraham. He said, keep your grubby hands off him. He's mine. Okay. And from that time... Abraham and the nation of Israel grows from him have one God, the true God. But all the nations are oppressed under these false deities. And then we hit the cross. And at the cross, everything changes because the power of these deities are broken. God says, I want you to take my gospel to all the nations. And what happens is, from the cross going forward, these gods had diminishing influence among the nations, right? You know, we'd all think about, you know, Western civilization as being extremely civilized. Well, you know... Before the gospel got to us, we were not extremely civilized. We were cannibal, cannibals, worshiping false deities. They were druids. We burned our children in the fires. You know, our forebears in Europe were not some great race, master race. No, they were pagans who were oppressed by demons, like many of the nations still today that don't have the gospel. But when the gospel came to us and we received it, it changed everything. And Western civilization grows under the influence 
of the one true God. But then what we see in Scripture, and this is why this timeline is important. As time goes on, my timeline's coming down here now, follow me. And the gospel spread and advanced. But it tells us in the Bible that as we get closer to the return of Christ, these beings that used to oppress the nations and then their power was curtailed will once again become increasingly prevalent and more powerful and will oppress people. If you read 2 Thessalonians 2, don't do it now, that's your homework. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it will demonstrate that to you very well. That's the biblical timeline. So what we're saying is at the return of Christ, prior to that, we are going to see a time that is much more like this before the gospel came than what most of us have experienced in our life. We are going to see increasing confusion, darkness, and oppression. That looks like a bunch of chicken scratch. Looks like something that Glenn Beck would do. Remember his old chalkboard things? Uh, anyway. What do these gods do? Luke 22, 2 Chronicles 17, and then we're not going to look at this one. I'll just mention it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it tells us Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. That's scary. It also tells us that the apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh that God allowed, but that thorn in the flesh was a what? Messenger of Satan. That's what it says. An angel of Satan to buffet him. Three times, Paul asked the Lord to take it away, and three times, what did God tell Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. Okay, so here's what, it, what these gods do. Let's look at Luke 22, first of all. Go back. Luke 22 is happening just before Jesus goes to the cross. They were in the upper room, and they just did that, except it wasn't that. It wasn't like a phony cracker and a little cup of grape juice. It was a meal, right? But they just did that. And Peter and Jesus are having conversations. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon. He repeats it, doesn't he? Why does he repeat it? Does he think Simon wasn't awake? No, he is showing his love to him. Simon, Simon. You can hear that in his voice. Can't you hear that in Jesus' voice? Simon, Simon. Look at this. Satan demanded to have you. Holy cow, that's scary. Jesus just tells Simon, you know what? Satan asked for your head. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But here's the good part. Jesus says what? It's okay. I prayed for you. You're not thankful that we have one who intercedes at the throne of God for us? 
It's okay. I pray for you. I pray that your faith will not fail. When you turn again, when you repent, strengthen your brothers. And Peter doesn't get it. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, no, Peter, I'm telling you, this is what Satan's going to do to you. I tell you, Peter, the the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times you know me. Why did Peter deny that he knew the Lord? He was induced to do it by Satan. Satan was active that night. He took Judas. These are the kind of things these demons are doing. Now, I'm not saying that any one of us in this room gets the attention of Satan. But mark it down, your marriage is on their list. Your marriage. Your purity, men. Your children. Satan wants them. And so they oppose us. Now, this one is extremely, extremely, I go back, interesting. The story is in Chronicles. It's about a guy named Jehoshaphat. Now, all of us know who Ahab was and who was his famous wife. Jezebel. Please don't name your girls Jezebel. We'll rename them in this church, right? Jezebel. She was a witch. Ahab and Jezebel. Well, Jehoshaphat marries into the family. What a dummy. Jehoshaphat is the ruler of the southern kingdom, and he's a godly man, but he marries into Ahab's family, and it creates carnage for him. So he goes up to see Uncle Ahab. And Ahab says, hey, you know, I'm going to go fight at Ramoth Ramoth Gilead. Would you bring your armies, and since we're family, let's fight together. And Jehoshaphat says, ah, that sounds like a good deal. Uh, Why don't we inquire of the Lord? See what the Lord says. And so Ahab calls 400 prophets. And all 400 prophets say, go, because God is with you. Now, interesting side story. 400 prophets tell them, go, God is with you. How many prophets did Elijah kill at Mount Carmel? 400. Okay, so these guys do get it. Go, God is with you. And Jehoshaphat can see it's a scam. He says, is there not really a real prophet of God here who we can inquire of? And and Ahab says, yeah, there's one guy. His name is Micaiah, but I hate him because whenever he prophesies something, he always says something negative. He just does not like me. And so Jehoshaphat says, well, let's get him anyway. I want to hear what he says. Go. That's where we get the story. Micaiah says, he comes to him. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, first of all, Micaiah says, before you read that, Micaiah says when he first comes in the room, go, God is with you. And Ahab looks at him and says, will you quit being facetious? 
I know you're lying through your teeth. Tell me what God really said. And okay, then Micaiah says, okay, I'll tell you the truth. And this is what he tells him. Now notice this. Micaiah said, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven was at his right hand and at his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he will go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? One said one thing, and another said another thing. A spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? He said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And he said, you are to entice him. This is God talking. You will succeed. You go and do it. Now, therefore, behold. The Lord put a lying spirit in the mouth of your 400 prophets. The Lord declares disaster upon you. And Ahab goes to Ramoth Gilead, and you know how he dies in battle? Some archer is standing way back, and he goes like this. And that arrow flies through the air. And it takes Ahab at the seam of his armor between his shoulder and his chest, and it goes in and it pierces his heart. And it says in the text, the archer shot at a chance, and God took the arrow. That's the kind of things that are happening in the spirit realm. Okay. C.S. Lewis, screw tape letters. Here's a quote. We're bringing it to a close. We're going to get through it today. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about demons, devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy fear. Now, why do I say that? Sometimes we in Bible-believing circles kind of downplay supernatural realities. That's not good. But sometimes believers can become so obsessed with these things that we actually open up a door of influence in our life. If I had an hour, I would tell you a story about a woman who came to Amy and I years ago from Farson, she was a rancher's wife in Farson and was running from her husband because she had believed that a, this is no joke, this is real, that a cookie jar that her husband had bought her, which was a rooster, was demonly possessed, sat on her counter, and everywhere she went in the room, she said it, its eyes followed her. She stayed with us, I think it was for two days. We heard her story. I ended up having to, to um, what do you call the thing, uh, testify at a custody battle when she lost her children and she lost everything in her life. Everything. Because of an unhealthy obsession with demons. 
and it destroyed her and her family. These things should not obsess us nor cause us undue fear, but we should be aware of them. So here's some pastoral counsel, and we'll close. Number one, do not dabble in idolatry, witchcraft, or demonic things. Do not. Kids, if you are at a party and one of your peers says, I'm going to go get a Ouija board, let's have a cool time. That is not a cool time. That is time to leave. Okay? And if you're afraid to call mom and dad, call me or Matt. We will come and get you and get you out of that. Do not dabble. You will open doors of influence in your life that you cannot imagine. It is a foot in the door. It is a gateway to things that will bring great harm and oppression in your life. Secondly, remember 2 Peter chapter 2? Do not make light or mock at spiritual realities. We should not mock it. We should not make light of it. I believe that can open us up in arrogance and pride to problems. We need to walk in humility. We should resist the devil and his forces, and we should always do so how? In the name of Jesus. Period. Period. I don't know about you, but there have been times When I knew that in a situation I was facing, I was facing a demonic force. I knew it. And the hair went up on my neck. And it was simply, the Lord rebuke you. And there was peace. You do not fight those battles in your own flesh. Period. It's in the name of Jesus. He is the conqueror. We take up the armor of God. We should know Ephesians chapter 6. We should think about the truths that are in it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. We should take up the armor of God. If oppressed. Now look, if you're a Christian, you cannot be demonically possessed. No. You cannot. There is no concord between Christ and Belial, it says. Okay? If you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, you cannot also be indwelt by a demonic spirit. But you and I can be in situations like Peter was, where some being has demanded our head to sift us like wheat. If something's going on in your life and you know it's beyond the realm of what is ordinary for you and you know it is a spiritual battle, seek help. Now, there again, it's not like you're going to have some exorcism. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's simply what? Rebuking in the name of Jesus and really seeking the blood of Christ. We overcome him, it says in Revelation 12, by the blood of the Lamb. Okay, trust Jesus, he is triumphant, right?
He has triumphed. Ultimately, he is the victor. I do believe that we are going to see an increase as we live and as the Lord tarries in oppression and darkness. I was in a doctor, I got to shut up quick, but I was in a doctor's office this past week. I'd have a follow up visit on some of my previous craziness. And when I was in the doctor's office, this office where I went had just gotten a new computer system. So they didn't know who I was, even though they knew who I was, right? So I had to answer all these stupid questions. There was a section in their questionnaire that was like a half a page wanting to know about my pronouns and every other thing. And it got an X from me because I am not going to participate in that lie. I'm not even going to acknowledge it. It's like somebody asking you, uh, when did you quit beating your wife? Right? If you acknowledge the question, you just participated in the baloney. We don't even acknowledge it. You look at, the, look at the pronoun thing for just a minute. He, him, she, her, they, them. That's third person, right? Plural. What are you saying about your personality if you acknowledge yourself as a they or a them? You are acknowledging what? You have a plurality within you. That is not something to play with, to even acknowledge. It's baloney. I got to quit. Amen.